Welcome to Business and Investing with Grant and Charlie, where we are enhancing your complete set of skills to build wealth inside and outside your business. Charlie, it looks like you have not shaved. Do you know what? It looks like you haven't shaved either. That's because I'm trying to present as if I'm a man. And I didn't have enough time reviewing the emails that you are writing. Now, if you're listening to this and going, emails, writing, five o'clock shadows, I got something for you. Head over to businessandinvesting.com forward slash newsletter, put in your name and email and get notified every single time we drop one of these episodes and then it will justify our five o'clock shadows. Charlie, let's cue your disclaimer. It's Charlie here from Business and Investing and I need to let you know that Grant, myself and the Business and Investing team are in no way, shape or form qualified to give you personal or specific financial advice. We strongly encourage you seek out and use professionals when you are making investment decisions or comparing investment products. It's a really nice tie-in, Grant. I appreciate you were able to bring in that we haven't shaved. And just to give our audience a bit of feel here, it's actually a Sunday morning and we're making this podcast now. After talking to each other for about 90 minutes beforehand. <laughs> we had important topics to cover about things in the world of investing. There's a lot going on right now. Heaps. Oh, my gosh. We should have just hit record and then just like published whatever we were talking about. I'm not sure anyone should be exposed to that dribble. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That is fair. Anyway, we're picking it up here in part two of uh, hard skills that will pay you forever. Now, I actually can't believe that this episode is turned into a two-parter. It turns out there's a lot to say about these skills. We could have just listed them out and ended it. <laughs> it might, yes, we, we could have. But then you wouldn't understand the stories and the layers below it. I couldn't have walked through Seaport. And Charlie, if you don't actually understand what Seaport is, you're going to have to listen to the other episode, part one. I actually Googled that after we were done. I Did you like, find I have anything? not heard of this. Did you actually find much? There's like bugger all. I was going to say, it's not a popular or well-published uh, topic, I will say. Totally. Which it should be. So bad. So good. Anyway, if you haven't picked up on the hints, there were some nuggets in the first part of this episode. We're going to be digging into the second part here. Grant, do you want to kick us off on the next skill, the hard skill that if you get good at, will pay you forever? All right. My number three, two of them on the previous episode, is feedback loops. So actually setting yourself up to get insights as to if the activities that you are doing are actually producing the outcomes you're looking for. (laughs) How many people just constantly do something and not actually stop and go, hang on, wait, is this creating the revenue, for example, that I'm looking for? So if I try and put more time into sales and marketing, Charlie, or spend more money and more time into it, is it actually producing a better result as a part of a feedback loop? And if it's not, Maybe I'll try a different approach. Maybe I'll do something different as opposed to doing the same thing repetitively and expecting a, diff- a different result. I got a story on this one. Oh, you do? Yeah. Uh, I'll, so I'll let you step in. One of the things I find very interesting in the world of entrepreneurship and business in general is the obsession with routines and habits, right? So it's like if you could just get the right routine in place, the idea is if you just keep doing that, it's going to take you to the place you want to go, right? The promised land. Yes. Now, in cycling, though, um, there's a very, very different thing. And yes, I'm bringing this back to cycling because this is where this actually had the biggest impact on me. And then I brought it into the business world. I was like, wow, this is a superpower. If you can get really good at this, it can make all the difference. So what happens in cycling is they'll give you like a workout routine. 
Right, so you ride for a certain amount of time per week. You do a certain amount of, at a certain intensity. So you might do 20% of your riding at high intensity, 40% at uh, slow intensity, and then whatever's left over you know, will be discernment um, or just say medium for the sake of this example. So you do that for like six weeks and then they have you do a test. And then based on that test, they discern how well you're adapting to the training. And then they change the training to match your personalized adaptation. So in cycling, someone had worked out that it's like we can't just give everyone the same routine yeah, because they all adapt to it differently. Like there's so much variance in how people do it. Now, I was really fascinated by this because I'd kind of like been a bit of a, a gym guy previous to that. And in gym world, well, the world I was playing in anyway, there was no talk of this adaptation. It's just like you do your five by five and you do that four days a week and that's what you do, Grant. Just don't shit on it because I'm still doing it. It's so good. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the difference. So if you're running your business and you're just doing the same routine but you're never adjusting for how well you're adapting to things or never adjusting to the results you're getting, how do you expect to actually get the result? So let's say you're doing a certain amount of time on marketing, a certain amount on sales, a certain percent on operations, and you're like, oh, you know, that's like my routine. But then when you really look under the hood, you can see, well, you might be spending two hours a week on marketing, but I'll tell you what, the results of your marketing are poor. So you're, you're not doing the right activities or you're not spending enough time on it. If you've got that type of feedback loop, it can, it can really change things. So bringing this back to cycling, what I was doing prior to having a good coach, I was just running myself into the ground. So I was trying to copy the routines of other cyclists who just for whatever reason are genetically conditioned to be better at endurance. Yeah, I'm more of a like, I'll call myself a hybrid athlete. I'm not a strength athlete and I'm not an endurance athlete, but if you sit me in the middle of both, I'll whoop them. Right? So I can never win a, a really long endurance race and I can never win a sprint. But if you put something in the middle, like that's my sweet spot. Like I feel that, as though the majority of cycling is either sprints or long distance too. It's very unfortunate when you get into something you find out you're not very well conditioned for or too tall for and too heavy for as well. But to the, you know what, you hit this perfect nugget, which is one of the three sort of sub-bullet points I'm just going to walk through here, is the if you're trying to replicate someone else's results by doing the things that they're doing without actually understanding where they're trying to get to, it becomes irrelevant, right? So to your point, if you're doing six weeks of exercise for like cycling, and the entire objective is to cycle longer, like longer distance. But you were trying to replicate the exercises of someone who's doing sprints, right? The feedback's going to be completely wrong. It's like you're looking at the wrong figure entirely. And so if you're a business owner trying to extract profits out of your business to invest in wealth outside the business, your feedback points or your data that you're looking at in order to create a feedback loop would be fundamentally different to a business that's looking to try and scale an exit, for example, because you care about profit margins. They care about revenue in the door based on a 2x multiplier on a sale. And so you can't go and duplicate it. It's it's all specific to the scenario that you're in. This is where the role of a good coach is valuable, right? Mm. So um, using the cycling example again, I I do a six-week block of training. I do the test that was appropriate for the race I want to win. Right, so I'm training for a race I'd want to win. So I know the outcome I want. That is the knowing what to measure when it comes to feedback loops, hugely critical. Totally. Right, so second point of that, I do this test and then my coach who had experience in athletes winning 
this race, another big hint, right? Would then say, based on where I'm at, this is where I'm weak, this is where I'm strong, and then would change the cycling plan for the next six weeks so I could then adapt and recover better. So in my case there, just to use an example of this, he his direct feedback to me was that you're training too much. We actually need to have you rest an extra day and shake up the uh, intensities because you're not recovering well enough ever to get stronger at the thing you're trying to do. Where I was just trying to win this with like, let's just ride more, ride more, more hours, harder. That's how we're going to win. Like if I can just be the guy that just loads up on volume and do all of it at a higher intensity, surely I'll just get fitter. Totally. Not how it works. So in business, bringing this back and like I, once I had this experience, I was like, I can see how this applies to business. How many business owners are out there where it's like they're not adapting to what they're doing and they're going, well, I'm going to put in more hours. Yeah. Do you know, I'm just going to go harder. I'm going to, I'm going to put more in. And it's like they're kind of burning themselves out in the same way because the feedback loops aren't actually being helpful to them being able to address what they're trying to achieve. I love it. It's funny because you've touched on like the two other two other points of the three. So the first one was like making sure that you actually track the right data in your feedback loop. Second one was having this uh, mindset and, and really deliberate action around continuous improvement. So you don't just want to get there. You want to continually sort of push the barrier. So imagine that you did those six weeks and you actually got to where you wanted. Well, the coach is going to move the barrier and move the goalpost a bit and just go, cool, like let's go here as opposed to eh, maybe you just want to maintain which there's a time and place in for maintenance as well. But it's like, how do you just continuously improve? And then the third part, which you touched on very well there, was the adaptability as well. It's like if you've done six weeks of something and it hasn't worked, it is the feedback loop that actually provides you the insight that, hey, whatever activities you did over the last six weeks in your example didn't actually produce the outcome you were going for. So do you do that again and just try for a, the duration of going, maybe it just needs 12 weeks? Do you try something fundamentally different? Do you do a hard pivot 180? And that is only provided to you by looking at that feedback loop. And in business and as well as investing, it becomes so easy because it's all financial related, right? Like we're all in business to generate profit and we're all in investing to generate profit. Like it's, there is almost nothing else that's relevant. Oh, there's, a, there's nuance to that, right? There's, there's nuance. Some points Sometimes it. it's like to your earlier point is like I'm trying to extract profits versus I'm trying to grow versus it might be you're trying to grow headcount in certain circumstances, whatever's appropriate to the the goal. But the idea being it's represented in the finances. You can it's, see it. It's um, so easy. Yeah. I, I still can't work out how this happened, right? The finance industry. So this is accountants and bookkeepers. Who, at what point did you guys all decide you're just not going to tell business owners that's your role and job? Like that's how you can actually help them? <laughs> You know, you're telling people on compliance and like, all right, we, you know, we're going to reconcile. I'm like, yeah, that, that's a way to get a group of guys ex- of business owners excited or guys and girls, I should say here. The one, the one group of people that actually can provide or close the feedback loop, whether it be weekly, monthly, quarterly or otherwise, <laughs> so the ones that don't actually know the power of what they've got. Yep, that's, uh, that's the greatest summary of, of and, it, and it's also p- pure, right? Gut feel is not a way to do this. Like I think when you can represent things without bias, it enables you to be better at it as well. And it's, again, coming back to this cycling example, you do the test, the results are the test, right? Yeah. And you adjust accordingly. You don't get to, oh, you know, like I was feeling it, I feel like I'm getting quicker. No, no, no. The, the result is the, is the answer here. 
So this, when we use finances in business, like it keeps it pure. The money hit the bank account or it didn't. You spent it or you didn't, right? It's it's so pure that it enables a better decision-making process on the back of it. And I think the final point that I will say on this uh, before I get off my soapbox again is the repetitiveness and the consistency is key. Like you can't you can't cycle for six weeks and then go to a coach or go and have a look at yourself and just go, ah, oh, cool, I'm, I'm good. I'll just keep doing this for the next six months. <laughs> like you have to have some kind of All routine. All right, we'll tell the prior part of the story then. The challenge I had is I had been racing for six months, Grant, and I wasn't winning. <laughs> I was rocking up on race day and I'm getting smoked and I'm putting 20, 25 hours a week in on the bike. That's ride time. Like I'm riding a bike 25 hours a week. I'm training my face off, right, Good. Uh, what I thought was good nutrition and appropriate and all the rest of it, and I'm like I'm just losing. But I, for me, I clearly needed that pain of just losing every week to go, fuck this, I'll spend whatever it takes with coaches, equipment, analytics, power meters, bikes. That's just how we roll here. You're the, you're the type of person that I feel likes losing. Like it's like part of your DNA is acceptance of losing and just going, eh, it's a part of life. I feel like you're not the type of guy that's really competitive and have to win at everything. <sighs> Correct. <laughs> <laughs> you buy us. Oh, my God. I really enjoy the journey of self-improvement. Yeah, I think it's great to get better at things. And uh, once, you know, again, it's like many times I've even changed hobbies. Like I'm not cycling anymore. That's mostly a kid thing I will say though because it's like it's a very time-intensive sport. Cycling and uh, having kids, uh, very challenging if you want to run a business as well. And then golf. (laughs) It was like me with golf. It was was eight weeks of thinking that I'm not using my body to swing. Only to like really like try and use my body. <laughs> the coach is just like, what do you think you did wrong in your swing? I'm like, not using my body enough. He's like, dickhead, <laughs> you're only using your body. <laughs> well, I think you just dropped everyone halfway into conversation, Grant, and they won't know what you're talking totally. about. That's so, uh, I feel Grant better spent that eight weeks thinking he doesn't know how to swing a golf club uh, using his body. And then we went and had a golf lesson and the guy said, all you're using is your body. Stop using your body so much. Like, again, this is, again, just highlighting appropriate feedback loops. Golf is a very obsessed uh, industry with data as well, I will say, and feedback totally. loops and the value of a coach. But let's go to the next point. Listen, your, your next point, Charlie. Later. Well, I feel like this is a, a perfect segue, and I'm going to say these in reverse order, but they're kind of the same, sales and communication. Amazing. I set that up for you. You, like you that? nailed it. So see how I was able to came, come in and re-communicate you were dropping someone in halfway in a conversation you were having? Perfect. It was. I had the conversation in my mind and it made sense to me, John. Have you met people in business, Grant, when they started out where it's like even if they had a fantastic product or even a reasonable marketer but like sales was the thing that just like let them down? I believe this is majority of businesses, full stop. I... Uh, would say I'm naturally inclined to be good at sales, right? I'm someone that's done well at selling. Even then, right, doing sales and communication training, one of the biggest level ups I ever got. And I'll, I'll give a special shout out to a guy called James Farron. I don't know if he's, I know he's listened to the podcast at times, but he's doing some big things in business at the moment. And I know he might be a little bit too busy. But um, when I did some sales training from him and he he took me from like, maybe I was like a four or a five and he took me up to a seven or an eight, changed business, absolutely changed business for me. And when it comes to sales, I think it's easy to look at it and go, well, that's just when you sell something and create revenue. 
it's funny how many of the skills that are involved in sales, and that's why I've said sales and communication, come in handy when it's like selling your idea to a team, selling your wife on a concept, getting people on board. Like there's a lot in sales that's actually like leadership. Yep. And I think it's a really powerful skill that too many people consider is either something not appropriate because maybe they don't directly face-to-face sale or phone sale or they think they know it and that's the dangerous one. <laughs> I've, se- I've seen that quite a few too many times. The, the beauty that I've found in people that are really, really good at sales is their ability to extract out the actual problem and what someone's trying to achieve and then identifying that the gap is the business or the service or the product or whatever is being provided to them. <laughs> I've, I've met people who thought they were good at sales that would never try and figure out the actual problem that I would have when they're trying to sell me something. It's just like, well, you just need the thing. And like, here's the the benefit case. There was this great quote that I'm just going to leave you with, Charlie. I have no idea who it comes from, which is, if a doctor prescribes medicine without first identifying the problem, it's called malpractice. And I thought that was like the greatest thing I ever learned from sales. And I'm like, this sales makes sense. It's like you can't prescribe if your product or service is actually going to solve their problem unless you actually know what their problem is and what they're trying to get from it. <laughs> and I'm like, we have this naturally in society. And I'm like, I was just like, that's it. That is the greatest summary of sales. And communication too. Yeah, we put these in a one mostly because I feel they are very entwined. But um, I'll share a story here. Um, one of the things that uh, happened for me is when I first got into agency and particularly Facebook ads, I had a very hot product. I had something people wanted. Now, that actually led me to the false belief I was good at sales. It's just because you had the thing. People are starving for water and you're the only one with water and like, yeah, I'm good at sales. So let's just imagine this. There's a massive (laughs) music festival on and there's all these food vans, right? But for whatever reason, all the other food vans, like their food goes off. It perishes. They sold out. Yeah. uh, No, because then that would imply that people's hunger is Oh, yeah, that's fair. So we won't use that one. So all of a sudden, you're the only food source at a massive music festival do you think you can be borderline offensive and still make a lot of sales? Do you your food can be crappy and still make sales? <laughs> yeah. So that's what happened to me. I had a very hot product and I had they wanted it before they even um, spoke to you. Yeah. yeah. So when I uh, changed businesses, and this is when I went into the VA industry or the BPO industry, and suddenly I'm trying to convince people on why they should replace their employees in their office with an overseas staff member, because it's uh, potentially more cost-effective and geo-arbitrage, wow, did that not go well. Yeah. Because it was very challenging uh, for them to conceptualise the ideas of like, well, you know, like it's so much, like I can touch this person in my office, I can trust it. Like getting them over that hurdle, having that humbling experience is what kind of led me to learn that skill set in a much, much deeper way. And uh, again, served me so incredibly well. I'm curious, why do you think, sales is such a hard skill like do you think this is because there's so many different frameworks to sell something that they all argue that their frameworks better is it because a lot of people can't get their mind out of like the product thinking which is like features and benefits versus problems and solutions and objectives like why is it because i have met people who think they're really good at it and they're just terrible at it but for some reason that just seems to be accepted in here like is this is like a do you want the truth yeah it's like an art form that i'm just curious of your thoughts on i don't think people can handle the rejection so you yeah so you 
expand on that for me. So you think that when they get rejected, they believe it's the other person that's the problem, not their approach to sales? All right. So let, let me just um, really simplify, Grant. You have conversations with people all the time, right? Is it that hard? No. Easy. Right. So do you like go, oh, do you know what? I've had 20 conversations with people today. It's like, geez, really wrecked me. Every now and again. Oh, well, maybe. But the po- point I make here is like people talk to other people all the time. Totally. It is very rare you'll find someone that doesn't talk to anyone else. Like sales is just talking to another person in a lot of cases here. So what's the difference when it's uh, just talking to someone else like we are now versus selling to someone else is that there's the opportunity for them to say no, right? There's the opportunity for you to get rejected. It's the opportunity for them to say that, you know, your product and service is shit. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't handle that very well. They, uh, for many business owners, is that rejection hits them really hard. Like I, I know a guy and he may listen to this podcast and uh, his sales guy uh, quit and he had to get back on the phones and having people uh, say no to him when he felt like his product was so valuable and going to help them rocked him hard. I can understand. I yeah, like completely. And I'm actually convinced there's many people out there that have intentionally like either not started a business or done a different type of business just because they can't handle being on the front of that. Give you another one. When someone, uh, let's say you get a bad review for your product or maybe you get a refund or whatever it is, which can happen for a variety of reasons, how many people do you know that then go on to self-sabotage sales because they're of a fear that people will come in and the product won't be good enough to meet their needs? Dude, I did that with my SEO company. (laughs) We had one client that was upset and I just refused, flat out refused to do like sales calls. And when I did do a sales call, I I self-sabotage that thing because I'm like, you don't want my service. I don't think I could provide value to you. And then every client, in my mind, there was always an excuse or a reason as to why they wouldn't be a good client to be part of the business. Completely. So when you look at sales and anything, do you honestly think sales is any harder than any of the other skills on this list? No, but for some reason, I think that it's just, no, you're right. A lot of the things on this list, a lot of people struggle at. I just feel as though sales is such a systemic issue. Yeah. So sales is the one that gets really interesting because it's you having to put yourself out there. Yep. And being at the forefront of that. And I just feel that in, that is what makes it tough. Yeah. Where like some of these other skills of your inability to delegate, your inability to find problem, like do problem solving, your inability to self-manage, et cetera. Like you're the one reflecting back on yourself in order to identify it, where the sales is the one where someone else can reject you face to face. Like that is- <laughs> That's what makes it hard. Yeah, because you can't Same with content it. creation, right? It's like yep. uh, how many people I know that it's- um, Again, they talk to people all the time, but if you put a, a camera in front of them and hit record, can't speak. Yeah, yeah. Or another persona comes out. It's like, it's like, it's like it's another third person in a the room. There's no difference to it. But that's why I think this is such an important skill. And I, I will say is that it's like this one, which, you know, it's, it's pretty high up on the list of importance for me. I, um, I mentored a guy in a business that I invested in. He was 22 at the time. And the first thing I did, got him into sales training. Just curiously, did that business start becoming more successful on the back of that? Dude, he's 24, raised money at a five mil vow. Like, <laughs> he's like crushed it. Like, he's at 24, man. And that was the first skill that I said, you have to do this. And it's because I could control some of these others. Like, it's, it's a power skill. I even think if you're not in something that has a direct, like if you've got an e-com store, right, where you're not facing customers in the same way, I still think you should learn this one. Yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I opened drop shipping businesses, so I didn't have to master selling. 
because I'm like, I don't want to see people face to face and like accept rejection because I could hide behind emails and a fake persona. And that's what people do. Shows up. But, yeah. but do you find it interesting when someone sends an email out and that for something for sale, it's like, you know, it's fine if 97% of the people say no to that. Mm. Yeah, because you celebrate it's not- a 3% conversion rate, but it's like, if you have to do it face to face, not the same. This <laughs> is that, yeah. Yeah, uh, dude, that, I just re- relate to that. People talking on in front of a stage of 100 people uh, versus like going up to that one girl on the dance floor and just like, get that rejection straight to your face. Like, it's like, ah, it's fine if the room doesn't. But that's the same thing. Totally. Oh, Maybe that's that- where the wiring comes from, right? It's being rejected by people in our youth. So when you come to that sales portion of it as when you have a business, it's like it can be very difficult. There's so much to that. <laughs> I know. Did I just drop a yeah, complete like- one there? I won't go, Uguay, see you guys. Don't worry. <laughs> go, Uguay. All right, uh, calm down, Chifu. Let's go to the next point. All right. My, so my final point, I f- it, this is another one of those ones that I think is very hard to identify, which is a, and it's a really difficult skill, an inability to actually research and educate yourself on a topic. And I find this interesting, and, and the best way for me to articulate this is if you were to give the same book to two different people, the interpretations are fundamentally different. And it's just like proven time and time again. If they were to read the book at the exact same time in a business, and imagine their worlds were exactly the same, but their upbringing was slightly different. Again, still the same outcome, like different interpretation of the same thing. And this is so important for people to understand because if you've got a problem that you know you need to solve or some kind of skill set you need to improve on, e.g. sales and communication, the information that you consume from different people will fundamentally change the outcome you get. How do you go about this? You are someone I would consider quite a good – I would say you're an excellent student. Like When you go after a topic and want to get better at it, your process of doing research and educating yourself is – it's strong, very strong. Appreciate that. So the first thing that I would lean on is I would always go to the people who have done the thing that I'm trying to do and just go, who do you go for? So, Charlie, like when I'm sitting there going, hey, who's the best person for bond investments and bond the government treasuries? And you go, these two people? I'm like, this is a great starting point. And so I always, first step, I always go and lean on other people who have done the thing that I'm trying to do and just say, where'd you learn it? Because no one came out of the womb with skill sets like sales or investing or anything. Get their recommendations as my first starting point. Secondary to that, I might ask a second or third person, but I'll go and start doing my own research. I'll jump onto YouTube, podcasts, Google it, or even on social media, and just start looking at the people who are producing some kind of things. I'll read more books around it from other people, and I'll try and form my own consensus around a particular topic to either remove ideas and say, well, those ideas just aren't well thought through, aren't well validated, or to bring in new ideas into an understanding. And that's like step number two is like bringing other things. And then I would lean on or try to lean on one or two different structures or frameworks around whatever problem I'm trying to solve. Because what I've done in the past is I've tried to deliver five different frameworks at one time and it turns into one shit framework that doesn't work. (laughs) Confliction. Totally. Well, that's the point I want to get to. Can we we go straight to here on that? Because like I concur with that. Let's say someone wants to get better at property investing. Right, yes. something we've we've crossed. Let's say we're both reasonable, uh, reasonably skilled on that topic. When you first get into property investing, right, the idea of like, okay, well, let's just read ten books from ten different people, and that'll make you a pro. I, I mean, sounds good in theory, but I know property pretty 
property investing pretty well. If you read 10 books from 10 different people, you're going to be confused as fuck because they conflict each other so hard. Yep. And so to that point, the key thinking for myself is why do they conflict? Because you'll see things that will overlap and you go, well, this is interesting. Every single person is saying the same thing on these pillars. But these pillars, everybody's fundamentally different, right? So what you'll find in property investing is almost all the gurus will have some kind of view around uh, areas that are going through gentrification or like improving and what that well, that's like. Well, that's like capital cities versus regionals, units versus houses. Exactly. Commercial so that will, versus residential, like it exists. Yep. And so then, and then you'll see all of those scenarios where it's like a versus. It's like this is better than that. This is better than that. And But – Underneath that, there are fundamentals that they all agree with, which is like debt is a great thing, like because of leverage. I don't know, Dave Ramsey. <laughs> you have your outliers. You always have the contrary views. Yeah, but that's why that's why I bring it up, right? Because I think this is a very dangerous thing when it comes to business. Like, how many? And I'll go to marketing, right? Oh yeah. How many God, different yeah. views are there on marketing? <laughs> yeah, but and it's funny because they all work. It just depends on industry, how you implement them, and all those kind of things. And this is why. When I consume information, I'm looking for me to try and find something to piggyback off because all I'm looking for is a well-assessed approach that I'm going to take. So if I've read 10 books on property investing and I'm like, this one in the middle makes most sense based on my experience, my bias, everything that I'm going for, I'm going to go and do this thing. I will then try and implement it. Right, So I'll buy a, a property that is based around that investment philosophy or to use your marketing example i'll go and implement this type of marketing in my business because it makes sense case studies aligned to my type of business it seems like it's within my budget all those kind of things i will then run that and as i get a feedback loop within a month two months however long is necessary i will see if that still applies to the business and then i'm looking for have i implemented it correctly am i missing a couple of layers i might pay the person to actually teach me how to do the thing better than i've done all of those kind of things until I've proven the fact that it does work or it doesn't work. And then I go, awesome. If it doesn't work, what else can I go and do? But this is why the education and research piece is so important because I find so many people will read a book on a topic, implement the thing, and it doesn't work and go, well, no, nah, this SEO never works. As I will know, like you've, you've never done the education or try and understand it. Yeah, to that point, that's where I feel probably one of the mistakes is where you're looking at it there. It's like the idea of just consuming one book or doing one course on a topic and thinking that this is the holy grail I'm going to get. Just follow that and I'll, I'll be successful. Totally. Where it's like you almost need to think the idea is if you want to get good at a topic, you want to consume five books, three podcasts, a couple of courses and spend time just understanding before you do it. And to the point, curiously on this one, is your, your little segue. How many books have you read on property? How many YouTube channels? How many podcasts? Way, way too many. <laughs> I'm just going to put it out there in a really creepy voice. All of them. All of them. Like, there are very, there's very few thoughts and approaches to property that I haven't read or thought about before. And, and it's really interesting. I'm going to leave you with a thought on this, Charlie. One of the key things when I'm learning a topic and researching on something is I'll go above and below the topic. And what do I mean by that? What I find is a lot of information that's out there is like uh, an appealing headline or like a tactic. It's like, we'll do this thing and you get this results. But there is all these roots that, and a trunk that sits underneath that little branch. And it's like, that's actually where the value is. And only because of these things existing, 
does that work? And so to use marketing as an example, like you might look at ads. If you have an image with a red border and this type of headline, everyone's going to click on your ad. Now, the reason that works is because of psychology and the reason that part of psychology actually happens is because this is how we're deep-seated and rooted in our personal biases and this is what we're looking for, pattern interrupts and all these things. And then you go, oh, that tactic makes sense. And so when it doesn't work, I've actually got a fundamental understanding of why it hasn't worked. But so many people just jump from tactic to tactic. And I think that is one of the key layers to education is you never just want to go on this surface layer of property is the right thing to buy. You need to actually understand why that aligns to your investment philosophy or shares or whatever else in in that example. Let's throw in some add-ons in your thing here. I, I find myself when it comes to education, I spend quite a bit of time judging the person's life and results they have. So, for example, it's like uh, the whole, if you've got an obese personal trainer, it's like they bring out a course that might be a red flag. I love that example. Um, Or if you've got a a broke property investor, you might caution for concern. And I'd even say one more than here is like, I really like to look at who they've worked with and the results they've gotten also. Because it might be great if they can do it for themselves, but if they've done it for people like you, that might be a really other key piece of information to be uh, kind of aware of when you're researching things. And then I'll just throw in one more. Sometimes when you want to get good at a topic, you need to accept where you're at. And um, I'll use golf as the example here because why not? We can. It doesn't make sense for me as a beginner to be consuming content that is designed for pros. Well, you've never looked at Tiger Woods and tried to mimic his swing? Yeah, I mean, that's just what I do on the golf course, right? (laughs) I mean, I can get on YouTube right now and look at videos about guys like creating backspin to stop a ball. Should I be happy if the ball goes forward? <laughs> totally. So when it comes to research and education, I think one of the best things you can do when you're newer to a topic or intermediate is like literally search for like property investor beginner. Yep. Right. Find the appropriate levels of learning for where you're kind of at with that one. One of the things I'll add on to the back of that as well is like when did they do the thing? Like I've read books from people that have made money in like the 1950s and their whole investment philosophy that just might not apply now. What, be right. a boomer? Be, be, be born in the 40s. Like, I'm like, I just can't replicate that. That's impossible. No, because like technology changes so quick. Well, this way- is more about filters, right? This is it, more about filtering totally. out things. And so using the filters that you've mentioned around like have they done the thing, what stage are you at versus them, um, when did they do the thing, all those, all those approaches I think come into how you consume the information and how much bias you are, are sort of apply to it. Like, am I going to lean heavier towards this book versus this book? Should we go to the next point? I would love to. All right. So this is the last one on the list of the, I think it's eight we've got in, in total. Yeah. I might recap yeah. them at the end. We'll see. We have to filter it down to eight. Finance skills. <laughs> you know, do you reckon this one would have been number, if we had to number them all, do you reckon this would be at the top? I thought about this. I actually thought about this as a question overall. Sequencing matters here. Like sequencing matters a lot. If you were really strong at finance skills but you couldn't sell or self-manage yourself, kind of useless. Yep. Right, so why these are eight skills that uh, definitely if you learn them will pay you forever, I would order these differently on timelines. Like it's pretty hard to argue with the idea in the beginning. If I was just looking at this list quickly here before I get into the point – if I was going to get good at something like when I first got into business, networking and sales. Hands down. 
I think everything's almost irrelevant. Like you build your product based off the people you've sold. Yeah. So then I looked at the next one on the list here and I'm almost going to say that like self-management and delegation fit into the next category, maybe problem solving and feedback loops to a point as well. But to get momentum and get things moving, it's like there's no point being great at the skill that will serve you later on. Yeah. So uh, in the case here, if you got really strong at finance skills in the beginning of your journey, great. You're going to be able to measure exactly how broke you are. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And the reasons why you're broke. Yes. (laughs) I'm not doubting there's power in that, but I would say that this is a skill you start to learn the deeper you get into it. Yep. Now, um, I mean, how deep do you want to go on this one? I want to go deep because the last point, man, we have to. I will, geez, I'm going to go out there on a, it's not even really a limb here, but when are I, so to kind of layer these a little bit, finance is the feedback loop I use to then direct strategy in the business. Right, so even now I've just got my monthly reports for my property business. I go over that first and then discern what strategies, actions, tactics, and things like that make sense. Yep. Right. So it's such a huge component that I think it is so critical, probably even more so on the investment side of things, but in business as well. And it's pretty close race in there. They're both hugely important. Well, I think it's because a lot of why we're a business owner comes around being financially free. And the only feedback we get on that is finances, right? Like there's very few business owners, like obviously you've got your not-for-profits and things like that, which have just have, even to that point, screw it. They're going for donations anyway. Totally. They're still financially financially driven. I can't even find a good example on this. Like there is always a fundamental reason as to why it's finance related. And finance is perfectly complex in its simplicity is that there's not a huge amount of moving pieces that you need to constantly understand and learn. I disagree with that thoroughly. But this is why I say it's simplistically complex because there are, th- like, I know you and I look at the P&L balance sheet and cash flows regularly, but I, I know that I could throw you five different businesses and those reports and you'd be able to understand exactly where they're all at at one point because it's so simple now that you understand it. And that's why I say it's like simplicity complex once you get through it i can say maybe I, I get where you're coming from and i can agree with the ideation but i just feel like finance is one of these things that it's like it's got a high bar of entry and then once you know it it's actually easy that's a better way for me to put my simply complex i think once you've done the hard work it's then easier like you can just look at it and you go, okay good. this is where it is it's one of those things when you first get into business right and someone uh when i first got a PL cash flow report and a balance sheet it's so overwhelming even reading your own. Yeah. So it's like the bar of entry, the skill set required to actually make it useful is like there's a learning curve. Once you're good at it though, as you said, you can throw them across and glance because you know how to give it context. Yeah. Like that's part of the skill in itself. Um, and like that might just be on the business front, but this is where it's like you can go even further though and going like in the beginning, I think if everyone can just get really competent in reading a P&L, a cash flow report and a balance sheet, you're, you're at a fantastic start. Yep. Where things get deeper than that, though, is the like cash flow management strategies, forecasting, like budgeting, debt management. Like there's a, a ton of layers that interblend between these that if you don't have that foundation, you won't be able to play in. So I guess a better way of saying it is like, let's say that uh, if we were going to make it like maths, you know, understanding the numbers one to 10 and maybe some addition and subtraction 
is like your P&L balance sheet and uh, cash flow report. But there's all this like algebra and times tables and stuff you can get involved in that can make a significant difference down the road. Like just think about the subconscious idea of like in property yields. Oh, yeah. Compounding growth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> compounding. Like everything just gets added on top of it. Interest rates, percentages, yeah. like you – the layers of finance that play in that world, particularly in property, I will say in that example, huge. But have you found that there is like an 80-20 principle to it? So once you understand the basic 80%, so to use your maths analogy again, which I think is great, like if you can count from 1 to 10, it's probably pretty easy for you to get from 10 to 100, 100 to 1,000, et cetera. But if you can do plus, minus, multiply, divide, you can do most maths equations fairly competently. There is this the final 20% that's more complicated that kind of will produce some kind of outputs. Do you think that the ability to read like P&L balance sheet cash flow statements and really start to understand what it means supports business, supports investing, but is also a foundation in order for you to understand exactly what we've just spoken about, which is like the interest rates, yields, um, compound growth, inflation, et cetera, where if you didn't have that grounding they would be a bit too complicated for you to understand because you didn't have that at the start. Yeah, I would say that what I've seen, um, again, I fall into this very lucky category that it's like I live with an accountant. And so I realise my circumstance isn't the norm or what people have access to to make their lives substantially easier in this world. But at the same time, it has given me a very interesting like context because I look at what I can do compared to like people I mentor or people we work with or you and I, although you have ridiculously strong finance skills for someone that doesn't have an accountant in the home. Um, but the thing I most noticeably notice when it comes to finance skills, people learn how to read a P&L when they're small, right? So they learn how to read a P&L thinking it's like, and it will get them by, right? Right, so let's pretend, and this is where I've seen it. I'm not going to name any businesses here, but if someone has a, a coaching business where they are collecting some upfront payments, and then have payment plans or using some sort of financing tools like Afterpay or ZipPay or OpenPay or whatever it is. In the beginning, when they're small, they can read a P&L. They think that's all they need to know when it comes to finance. Then they scale and then suddenly the awareness comes in that, oh, shit, my P&L says I made this much money, but that's not what's in my bank account. Yep. Where's the cash? And it's like they've already committed all the sins of growing a business off a P&L without understanding the cash flow report or the cash flow strategies and they end up digging themselves in a really big hole. Yep. Right? And then the next sort of consequence of, of that is they start using like debt or other things to do it, which will show up on your balance sheet differently. Right? So then again, it's like they almost commit the sins of the first report into the second into the third. But by the time they can understand and read all three of these, congratulations, they're now aware why they're a little bit fucked. <laughs> But it's funny because when they when they work through that scenario, they're like, oh, yeah, no, logically I can understand that as well. <laughs> it's just that when you see it on paper, it's very different to think about. Yeah, so, but you think you're okay because, you know, reading the P&Ls get me by at this stage. But it's like you don't want to like have dug the hole before you work out. It's like at the time it's like, and this is a hindsight thing, I don't necessarily like uh, blame anyone. Like it's a, it's a business challenge, right? There's so much to do and learn in business like – Let's pretend one of these business owners was learning one of these uh, sales skills or networking instead of learning how to read a balance sheet. It's very hard to sit there and go, well, it's not like they were doing nothing. 
Yeah, totally. And they were probably doing the right thing at that point in time. But without the awareness to these other things becomes heavily dangerous. I've even found the same for when I've looked at businesses to invest in with shares. I'm like, if you just looked at the P&L, oh my gosh, <laughs> you would be stuffed. Um, even SaaS companies, like trying to get investors in on SaaS companies. And I've been through due diligence of VCs investing in uh, my own software companies. Man, like they spend more time on other like financial reporting outside of just the P&L. Like the P&L is like almost a tick and flick. <laughs> Everything else is where they well, see where the That's the one that's in. the easiest to cheat. It's completely. It's the most manipulable is the P&L. Like that's the one that's almost like uh, – when I first heard this quote from Keith Cunningham, he's like, he's like oh, a P&L is a movie. Yeah. It's just like people making shit up, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do love it how he's like – and then you've got like companies like Google who have got like two of them. <laughs> It's got like one for management and then like one for tax reporting. Completely. And, and Let, like, let's go there. I'm going to go there right now. Oh, he's like, this um, is deep. <laughs> well, we said it from here is like, let, let's pretend there's a, a business owner out there and what they're actually doing is loading up on personal expenses in their business. So there's a, a car like in this. there, there's some holidays in there. <laughs> but maybe it. they're even like doing a bit of dodgy shit. And then they get their P&L at the end of the month. Is that an accurate representation of the strength of that business? Not at all. No. It's a made-up story now. Completely. It's like it's not pure. It doesn't assess things. Where if you look to things, and this is why I quite like it, is like the cash flow report, it's like money entered the bank account and left the bank account. Yep. There, There is no – like revenue is pure. That is what happened in the bank account. So it's like I look at it and go very, very different game and then balance sheet again where – I get why people manipulate their P&L and do certain things at times and there's strategy involved in that, but it's also like it, people do it delusionally and accidentally all the time. Have you ever looked at buy businesses where like the founder or the business owner's salary was just not on the P&L? And then <laughs> Interesting like, that oh, one, isn't it? <laughs> just, oh, yeah, cool. Like how, how consistent is the salary you pay yourself every month? <laughs> I haven't been paying myself. And you valued the business of what? <laughs> I once looked at buying a, a business, right? And it was uh, what generally happens when you buy a business for anyone that hasn't gone through the experience is they will give you like a disclosure. Yep. Right? So you come in and you get a whole, informa- whole heap of information about the business and then you get some financials. Now, what was interesting is I had a whole heap of questions about things in the financials. And what it became very apparent to me is that the business owner had no ability to read or understand the financials. So give you the idea, what this turned into was like, imagine you can speak French and they can't. And you're trying yeah. to talk to them about this and going like, why is this here? And I was like, I'm like, wow, this is, I can't, I can't even look at this. <laughs> I can tell you how that happens. Like when you sell the business, depending on like the, the company you sell through, they'll give you like a Google sheet or like a spreadsheet that's just like fill in these details. And so then, <laughs> and so then, and then it has like different interpretations. So it's like fill in your profit here. And then in brackets, it would have like all the different terms of profit based on all like the different accounting practices. <laughs> and so you, like what you do is you, like, you zero up and you use this Google sheet. You just try to like copy and paste across. You have no idea. Like it's just, it's hilarious. But yeah, I could, I have seen some horror stories and I've seen people buying businesses. We know a gentleman that bought a business for just under a million that just did not dive into a lot of these things. Mm, well, I'm not even going to get into that. Let's move on. <laughs> did you like that? If you want to know more, subscribe. Head over to businessandinvesting.com forward slash news that'll put in your name and email and maybe we will maybe we'll do an episode on like horror stories in businesses. This is I should think we, we should actually do an episode on talking about the experience of buying a business. I think there's some interesting things to learn from that. 
Yeah, anyway, I'm going to quickly list these out and then we're going to finish up this episode. Let's so going through the skills uh, in no particular order, but I will ask you to pick your favorite one, Grant, at the end. Uh, so be ready. So number one, delegation. Number two, problem solving and analysis. Number three, feedback loops. Number four, education and research. Number five, self-management. Number six, networking. Number seven, sales and communication. And then number eight, we've just done here, finance and investment. So again, not which one you think is the most important, not one, not the one you think others should learn. What's your favorite one? Sales and communication. Inter- I did not expect you to say that at all. You know why? You going to change it? No, no. Do you know why? Tell me why. I think it's the thing I'm worst at. Interesting. Dude, you know me. I'll jump on my hand grenades. I'll try and improve them. I, I think everything else, I'm like pretty good at it. I think it's this, and I'm not too bad at sales and communication. Communication is not too bad. Uh, so, yeah. So, for myself, like that'd be, and I also think it's super important for most business owners anyway, especially if you get started. So, yeah. So, sales and communication. What about you? Where would you land? Oh, I've got so many favorites on this. I'm going to go self management. Self management is such a good one. And there's so many layers to it. I don't think you can ever perfect it. That I'm just a sadist. I just want something I can never be great at. <laughs> infinite, the infinite on the wheel. Awesome. If you have got any others that you would actually add to that list of eight that we've put together, Charlie and I actually had a substantial list that we've boiled. Yeah, down there to was eight. more. We could do a part three, but I feel this is enough. This is it. Head over to businessandinvesting.com forward slash newsletter and actually just reply to one of the emails and just let Charlie know. Just say, hey, out of all of the hard skills that will pay you forever, these are the ones that I actually feel are most important. And I'd love to see them. And we might actually do a part three of this. Just want to say thank you very much for joining us and we'll catch you on the next episode of Business and Investing.